0: Amen. A verse there that just stands out to me was the Romans 8:18. 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Doesn't minimize the suffering. Doesn't minimize the trial. Doesn't minimize how long that journey can be at times, right? But the reality is that the same confident hope is what has led millions of believers traveling through life to endure deep suffering, to go through unspeakable trials along the roads of persecution, even to the point of those who have given their lives for the name of Jesus. They've all had that deep abiding confidence in this hope of the promises of God. They've had ears to hear what God has said through His promises for those who love Him and who live by His promises. Did you hear that there? Did you hear that along... that it was a journey? That it is a journey, right? It is a journey. And we're constantly looking forward in hope to what is to come and is to be. However we can lose sight of that, right? We can lose sight of heaven. And this morning, we're going to see in our passage today that God intimately gets involved and the Spirit gets involved and says, Hey, it's coming. There's hope. There's hope of a future and permanent, eternal blessing. However, mankind has persisted In ignoring both God's promises and God's warnings throughout history, right? Mankind so is so consumed with what is in front of us. With both the happy things in life, the pleasures of this life, as well as the difficulties of life that we just ignore. The voice of God. The messages from heaven. In the days of Noah, God saw such wickedness on earth that he decided, I need to clean house. It's time to clean house. Mankind gave no thought, no reverence, no worship to the Creator. So God brought cleansing judgment to the earth. But before sending the flood, what did God do? God sent Noah. Yeah, we all think of Noah building the ark. And he had the greatest object lesson in the world. Like, you know, conversation piece sitting on your, your coffee table is nothing to building an ark in your backyard. Okay? And by the way, you've got a pretty big backyard to build an ark. Right? But God sent Noah as a preacher of righteousness, we're told, in Second Peter 2.5, to warn the world of what was coming and to proclaim that there was a way of escape with the message of coming judgment came this message of an escape. And Jesus pointed that correlation between the ark and himself as the way of escape. Matter of fact, this wasn't just any one-time message. Noah preached this message for like a hundred years. And parents, you think that, you know, I've told you twice. Noah's like, I told you for a hundred years. Yeah, sure, Noah. And yet... No one listened. God spared Noah and his his family, but no one else listened. And Scripture gives us examples all the way through of others who refused to listen to the warning. Sodom and Gomorrah, Pharaoh in Egypt, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and the prophets came repeatedly to the people of Israel, warning them, warning them, and warning them. And ultimately, God sent his people away, to allow pagan countries to be used to judge his people. But we also read of the faith of those people who, who lived the journey of faith, trusting in God's promises. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we've got a whole list of people the stories of people, the hall of faith of people who persisted on, though they maybe never received what it was that they had been promised, they were living for a city whose builder and maker was God. And because of that, they left friends and family. They left land. They gave their bodies and their possessions to be plundered and taken because they believed in a builder and in a city whose builder and maker was the Lord God. They lived in faith and they lived for a promised home. Right? And so this brings us to Revelation. As we look to the end of time, this kind of, of struggle continues. The warnings continue through the Word of God. The promises are before us for us to live by. Faith in. But as we come to our passage in Revelation 14, we've seen the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet, his false prophet, which is encouraging people to turn away and ignore God and rather worship the Antichrist. Right? And at the same time, to put great trials and great burden upon the people of God. But in 14.1, that, we start to see a glimmer of hope. Because, as, as Chris preached last week, we've got Christ standing on Zion, the Lamb standing on Zion in victory, and saying, "I'm here. I'm here, and I'm not. I'm not going away." And this week, as we begin in verse six, we're in, in through thirteen. We see that God mercifully continues to send messengers, messengers, with a message of of both judgment of the reality that it's coming, but a message of the eternal gospel. In fact, John records four heavenly messengers here. We've got three voices, five voices, three angels, and a voice from heaven and the Holy Spirit in verse 13. So we're getting a lot of divine messages coming on right here. So I think it would do us well to sit up and take notice, to pay attention. You got three angels and a voice from heaven and the Holy Spirit. It might do well for us to listen. And so that's my prayer today, that we would hear, we have ears to hear, what the Spirit has to say to us in our day as we look towards the last day. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, I want to begin reading with the first angel. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead what many describe as the mid-heaven, in a place that would be available for all to see. With an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice. In other words, he didn't just say it. He proclaimed it, right? He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So John references another angel, but if you look in the verses preceding, you don't see another angel. You see Jesus, and in the previous passage, in the previous chapter, you see a couple of beasts, right? So this actually points us back to Revelation chapter 11. And in verse 15 of chapter 11, we saw the seventh angel who, in the series of trumpet-blowing angels, and John notes that this is another one. What is he doing? He's trying to connect. We've had a little bit of a, a pause between these, these the series of angels. So he's drawn our attention back to this one in verse in chapter 11, verse 15, to say, hey, it's moving forward. Okay? We're not going back. But we're moving forward. Here's another one. Okay. So what is the, na- the message of this first angel? Well, this message is one that's pretty clear. Begin fearing God and giving Him glory, the glory alone that is due to Him. We'll see here that this angel has an eternal gospel to proclaim. What is this eternal gospel? Because it, he doesn't say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the gospel we know. It is an eternal gospel. A gospel that is from time past to time future. The fact of the matter is, as we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are doing what, God, what, what the angel calls us to do here. We are reverencing God as the authority, as the one who is the creator, which he goes on to say here. We are fearing God and we are worshiping God. What are we to do before Christ? We're to reverence Christ and to worship Him. For He is the, the third member of the triune God. We're to fear God, reverence God, to acknowledge Him for who He is, to respond to Him for who He is, and to re- re- respond in our lives in a way that ref- respect or in respect to worship. What is worship? Worship is giving God what is due Him. Well, what is due Him? What is He owed? What do we owe God? Oh, we owe submission. We owe obedience. We owe adoration to love Him for who He is. We owe everything in terms of, of all that we are and all that we have to be given towards loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. That is at the heart of the eternal gospel. So those who refuse that are those who continue on down the path of saying we don't we're not listening. We don't want anything. We don't want to hear what you have to say. But the good news is this. This is the gospel, the the good news. And that is this if for all who do fear and worship God on his terms, coming to him by faith in the Lamb of God, as we saw in, in 14.1, there is eternal life. It's a gospel that has been that has been in place because God is and has always been, but it's a gospel that translates for us into eternal life as we hear, respond, and obey. This is a message of mercy. Because all are headed down a path towards judgment. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have gone our own way, we find in the Old Testament. This verb tense here, where he says, fear God and worship Him, is the, is that's an, the fear is a verb that means begin fearing. In other words, you ain't been doing it, start now and continue doing it. I don't think he, the angels probably didn't use ain't, okay? But the idea is that he said, begin. Begin now. You've persisted in your rebellion. You persisted in ignoring God. You persisted in going your way. Begin now. For now is the accepted time. Now is the accepted time. It's not time and, and in that day, how much more true will that be? But you say, yeah, but I have time. We know that history continues on, right? And that's addressing the end of history, but we don't go on forever. All humans have an end, is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And so the, the time to begin to give God the reverence and honor that He's due as the creator of the universe and to worship him as the sovereign God, that is today. Why would we wait? Why would we wait? So why the call to fear and to worship? And really there's two things that we see in this passage. First of all, because he's worthy. He is the creator. He's the, the one who made all the land and all the sea and everything that you see in it. And so he owns it all, to put it very simply. This isn't a message of, of real brand new things. This is a message that says, here is the truths of old that are going to continue to be proclaimed until the last day. The, the message that says, fear God, to to because he's first of all, He's worthy. And second of all, because if we don't, there are eternal consequences from refusing to do so. Just as Malachi 2.2 warns us, If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and will curse your very blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. This, again, is a message of mercy. You say, no, that's a message of judgment. Friend, why would you give a message of judgment except to warn people? If God wanted to just judge us and end it all, then He could. But in mercy, He calls us to say, you continue down this path and it's going to be bad. It's going to be painful. And how awful it is that we refuse to proclaim the reality of coming judgment because we're afraid of how people might feel about it. I would guess in our congregation this morning that many of you may be uncomfortable with what lies ahead in our passage today. With the discussion of the coming of eternal judgment, about the wrath of God and eternal torment, it's not easy it's not easy to be this guy on this side, except that my responsibility is not to make people happy, but to proclaim the truth. Amen. And so the truth is that there, there, if we do not listen to the reality of who God is and what he has done and his promises and live by faith in that, then there's, there is a coming judgment. That's, that's, that's all I can say is the truth. But the good news is this. In the New Testament, we find that every time judgment comes up, we also find that it's always connected with the proclamation of God's mercy. And that is the message. That is the eternal gospel. And in verse 8, we now see that for those who continue in spite of this merciful message, That they, that with, without this eternal gospel, they will face only wrath. And we read that in verse eight. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This second message of the second angel, Is that the world and its idolatrous system is certainly doomed. And you're like, man, this is, I didn't come to church for this, man. Friends, do you want what we're seeing to go on forever? Really? Seriously, do you want to see us pursue deeper and deeper into the dregs of the nasty sin that not only we as individuals can go, but we as a world seem to be finding new ways is that re- Do you want that system to go on and on god doesn't and it won't and that's the good message here in contrast to the victorious lamb in 14:1 we now see a proclamation of the certain coming destruction of babylon And while here we see it proclaimed, it anticipates the thorough description of the fall of Babylon during the final bull judgment in Romans 16, 19. This is is the proclamation as though it is done. We've seen this proclamation before. If you've read through the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 21, 9, it says, And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, Fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods, he has shattered to the ground. So, first we see this, this fallen, fallen. Why would they write it twice? We don't really do that a lot. And the reason we don't do that a lot is because on your computer, you have things like italics, and bold, and underline. They don't just do it to have another word to write, right? You're literally writing this out. If you're like me, you don't like to write and the less you have to write out. But if you're making a point, then fallen, fallen. It is is certain, and it's unavoidable. It is a a done deal that Babylon is eminently going to fall. There's no other possible outcome, in other words. But what is Babylon? Right? What is this Babylon thing you're babbling on about? Well that's a great question babylon clearly has a symbolic meaning here in revelation while while we, we'll dig into these details of babylon in the in the weeks ahead clearly babylon means much more than just a physical place it means more than just a nation okay babel if we go clear back to the book of genesis genesis chapter 11 babel which later became in, in from the same area as babylon Was founded by a guy with the name of Nimrod. Nimrod, seriously. If I was in junior high, there's no way that I would read that and not laugh. You say, but you're not in junior high, you're 55. I still, I read it and I laugh. I'm sorry. So, that's just the way, the dude was a Nimrod from the get-go. Okay? So, that was founded by this man, Nimrod. The Tower of Babel was not so much a physical building up to reach Yahweh, but rather it was an attempt to exalt humanity and make humanity, make man equal with God. Have we ever heard of that before? Maybe back at the fall? And here's what they said in Genesis 11. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So, as in the history of both Babel and Babylon the Great, right? John's reference to Babylon the Great presents really a worldly system in which man is the focus. He's focused on his own self-rule. He's focused on his own self-worship where it's my will, not thy will be done. And that has persisted through mankind, and it will persist, and it will only be accentuated in the last days. Men will become lovers of selves, and grow worse and worse, Paul told Timothy. You see, in Babylon, God is not worshipped. God is not feared and worshipped as the first angel said. Rather, man is glorified and self is worshipped. We read that Babylon has made the nations the reason for its judgment, the reason for it's going to come down, is because it has made the nations to drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. I believe a more helpful translation here reads, made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. In Scripture, and I believe Chris pointed this out last week, this idea of adultery in Scripture is those who are not loyal to Jehovah God. Those who worship some other god to put another god before them, and in this in this way, all the world around us encourages us to love this present world, to worship the create the creature, creature and creation more than the creator, rather than the creator. The citizens of Babylon drink deeply at the cesspool of the world's pleasures. It is like, give it to me and give it all to me, right? Sometimes the only thing that limits that for many of us is money and opportunity. We, look, we like to look out to Hollywood and, and just, oh, they're so awful. You know, the only difference between many people is that those people have money and opportunity that you've not had yet. And we drink as deeply as we can at what we have before us. And sadly, we, we can become intoxicated and controlled by the adulterous passions of the system of this world, Babylon. Become wholly earth-focused rather than heavenly-minded. We can become passion-controlled rather than spirit-controlled. And the ruler of this world wants you to fill up. He offers a beautiful buffet that promises everything and yet can deliver none of what it promises. Worship anything but God, he would say. Worship entertainment. Worship your work. Worship your family. Worship whatever pleases you. Just don't worship the Creator. The sad thing is that every object that you can possibly worship in this life, Offers what it cannot fully and forever deliver. Oh, it may bring pleasure. It may bring a matter, a measure of satisfaction. But how quickly those things are gone. And one day, he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Because one day, it will be completely and forever removed. Any other gods. Any other gods. One day, this whole self-absorbed man-exalting system will come crashing down. And here, John records that a third angel proclaims what will become to the citizens of Babylon. Those who have worshipped at the cesspool of Babylon. Who have sought other gods of Babylon. And he says in verse 9, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast... Bringing us back to chapter 13. Worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with the fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever And they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of his name. You see, back in chapter 13, the beast and his prophet put the fear of the beast in these people. That they might worship the lamb. Not the lamb. They might worship the Antichrist, the beast. Right? To be worshippers in Babylon. Sound familiar? Fear? How did they strike that fear, though? Through manipulation, get the mark, identify as a citizen, or you get nothing. You'll not buy and sell. You can go starve to death. Go kill yourself for all we care. And here, the first angel says, No, fear God. Worship the Lamb. And we're going to find that this promise is eternal life, not some temporary fix in present Babylon. You see, for those who drink Babylon's cup, who this cup of adulteries that it offers, the Lord will give His own cup, this cup of wrath. And that's the message of the third angel, that those who drink, seek to drink their fill at the altar of this world will be filled eternally with the wrath of God. I just want to say this. You may be, very first day here, Maybe you've only been here a few times. Maybe you've never been to a church who would talk about the wrath of God. And I don't lift us up in any way to say, oh, look what we do. Because we're not doing anything other than studying the Word as it's before us. But if if the Word says it, we want to read it, we want to hear it, we want to respond to it in faith. Do we believe what God says or do we not? And a lot of times there's hard messages. And this is a hard message. And you may say, well, it's not so hard because I've trusted it by faith in Christ. Then you're missing something. You're missing a love for a world that is lost and dying and headed to a Christless eternity. To be tormented forever in, in the pits of hell. And if you can't think beyond the end of your nose and your family, then we need this passage today. I need this passage today. Because there are people perishing. There will be people who literally, really, with all that they are, will be in this place of judgment. Friends, if we don't care, we don't have the love of Christ within us. He loved. And He loved in such a way that He gave Himself, even unto death on a cross, that we can have life. Now, with that said, what is in this message of the third angel? Well, first of all, he makes it clear to whom he is addressing. This third angel twice addresses the worshippers of the beast, or those who've received the mark of the name. The worship of the beast in its image is a direct violation of the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, you shall not make for yourself and, nor bow down and worship other gods. That's out of Exodus chapter 20. But those who live for this world and set themselves up as the very enemies of God, Philippians 3, 18 and 19, Paul describes such people as enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their appetites, their passions, which we've seen described here. And their glory is they glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. You see, there is, there is at present the opportunity for each of us to, to live for what this present life offers. Yet, there's coming a day when Babylon comes crashing down and all who have, who have staked their hope and identity in this life will face the Almighty God. Who not only created the world, but created each one of us. Each one, you and me. For the purpose of His glory, of pleasing Him, and for our own eternal good. Each one who sought their fill on this life one day, one day and forever, will face the Almighty God. The same God who sent His own Son, His own Son to the cross, to bear this cup of wrath in their place. You see, this cup doesn't have to be received by any one of us. It's already been taken. Jesus in the the garden said, let this cup pass from me. But it didn't. The Father found it pleasing that His own Son would take this cup in your place and my place. The question is, do we hear The call of mercy. Do we hear the eternal gospel being proclaimed? That we would turn from our our own way that ultimately will lead to judgment and instead by faith trust in Christ. God's judgment is consistently referenced throughout Old Testament and even in the New as a cup. Jeremiah 25.15 says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. But this isn't just a cup of some wrath. It is a cup that is described as being in full measure. What is that about? Well, in this time, they would have taken their wine, which would have been stored often condensed. They would have taken that wine and they would pour it 50-50, water and wine. And the purpose for that was, first of all, their water wasn't very good. You did not want to drink it without this alcohol killing what was in it. Okay? And so they would mix it. Now, obviously they would have different mixtures, but the only time you drank it to the full strength is if you had one purpose. And that was for it to become a controlling substance in your body. Right? That it would have it, you would be drunk with it. You only drunk it full strength if you wanted to be drunk with it. Here's the clear statement being made. God's wrath will be consumed by the citizens of Babylon in its fullness, undiluted, that the effects might be fully experienced. As they were drunk on the pleasures of the world so in eternity, they will be drunk on God's judgment. That's heavy. And praise God, that it doesn't end here. I'm just telling you that because we're not there yet, but we're getting there. We're coming up. We're coming back to that eternal gospel because as we come to the end, we'll see that there's, there's more to be said on this subject. But the third angel makes it clear That this is not a passing experience. There will be no parole for good behavior. There will be no what William Barclay ultimately comes to where it's going to be universal salvation. Where sometime, somewhere out there in all eternity that maybe they'll all have paid enough and they will all be then brought into heaven. We don't see that. I would love that. I am a middle child. I am an appeaser. Okay? I like everyone to be happy. I want everyone to be happy. But I can't do it at the expense of the truth. I can't do it. I can't make up my own scriptures. I can, but they're worthless. The scriptures, according to Steve, are just ask my family. They're not real great. Okay? They're not going to be worth a whole lot in the long run. But the scriptures, according to the Word of God, say here, According to this third angel, that they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. This is an eternal torment, a forever and ever without rest. while well, the discussion of this is a heavy one, I would hope that we would would not run from it quickly. That instead, the first thought would be, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank You that You helped me to see the truth that I have escaped the wrath that is to come not because of anything I did because I don't deserve it. I deserve wrath. I deserve judgment. But You, You sent Your dear Son to take that curse for me. To take that on so that I can be free. And so we then get to the hope of it all we find that we finally get, the after this terrifying warning of the third angel, we actually get to chapter 12. Or verse 12. And John says, here is a call for endurance of the saints. It's almost like John steps aside. So here's the vision of the three angels. Then you have John here. okay? And John says, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. These are the ones who fear God and worship Him. And he says, I'm calling for you to keep on. I know that it's hard. I know that it's hard right now. And I know it will be hard in the day when the Antichrist is revealed. This is like an aside to those readers. Okay? It's a call for the endurance of the saints. Which is a primary theme all throughout Revelation. Keep walking in faith. Keep walking in faith. Keep walking towards home. Keep your eye on home. And don't stop moving. Endure. And it it was as though John says this, and then immediately he's back to these divine messages. And he hears a voice from heaven, he says in verse 13, saying, write this. Write this. In other words, get this down. You don't get anything else. Get this. And this voice from heaven can be none other. For someone to have this such authority and to say what he says, all the commentators believe this is one. This is God himself. God, so he sends angels to warn of judgment. He sends angels to, to proclaim this eternal gospel. But he himself reassures the saints. And what does he say? Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now, first of all, the now on. Is that like now on from when this is reported to be in the future? Or is this now on from when John writes this? I believe, based on what John just said, for the endurance of the saints in verse 12, John referenced saying to, hey, everybody, keep on, call for endurance, and then the, holy, then the voice from heaven saying, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. This is a message for the saints throughout the ages. And then we get, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Where those who face eternal torment get no rest. They are invited to rest. They are invited to rest from this most difficult journey of suffering, of trials, and difficulty along the road of life lived by faith. They're called to say, ah, come and rest. Come and rest. What was this emphatic divine messages that had both a voice from heaven with a following mighty amen from the Holy Spirit? What was the message? Continue in the faith of Jesus Christ and you will be eternally blessed and rewarded. And if you read those words on a page, you go, okay, yeah, I got my, I got my blanks filled out. But the fact of the matter is this is, this is it. This is it. This was the message our sister shared in, in the video this morning. Continue on. Because home's going to be worth it. What is endurance? Is persistently walking forward by faith in God and his promises no rough, no matter how rough, no matter how broken the journey may be. The author of Hebrews in chapter eleven, I'm sorry, chapter twelve, says this let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The call is the same for us to, to despise the shame that may come as we face most difficult of times, to endure the cross that God calls us to bear. And to persist on as we keep our eyes set on Christ, who is chief king, sovereign ruler of the place we call home in heaven. There's only one means whereby to escape the wrath that that has been described. And to there's only one means whereby to enjoy the blessings of heaven. And that is to look to Jesus by faith and to run in faith following Jesus. You see, a life of faith not only calls for endurance because of the temptations that we have within the, to follow the passions of this world, but the fact of the matter is we face opposition. Some of us have faced that kind of that, that spiritual opposition personally. Others of us may not have as much, but the fact of the matter is this whole world, this whole system is opposed to us living by faith in one that we cannot see and they cannot see. It's against us living by the promises of God. The promises of what, as they might say, the spaghetti man in the sky? Right? Some of you who have seen that kind of stupid reference. The fact of the matter is, we are called to endure through such trials. Mark 13.13 talks about this kind of hatred. And he says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so the question becomes, will it be worth it? And I could quote the song, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus, right? But what do we see here in the passage before us? What does God say about it? What does the Spirit say about it? Will it be worth it? This is the question Christians have been asking over the last 2,000 plus years. In verse 13, God says this, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Now, if God says it's blessed, it's different from me saying, hey, to one of my kids, come home. It's going to be great. Christmas is going to be amazing. I can make all kinds of promises about Christmas. And if my wife's cooking, it's going to be good. But I can't guarantee any of it. I can't guarantee them the next breath. I can't guarantee them a moment. We might all get sick and have, you know, be puking our guts out, right? We might not eat a thing for weeks. The reality is I can't make those promises and deliver on them. And my promises are pretty limited. I can only promise so much. I only only have so much time, effort, energy, money, right? So I, I, they'll, they'll eat us out of house and home. They stay very long. But the fact of the matter is I don't have much I can offer. But when God says, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. He can deliver as the creator God of the universe in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom. That's the beauty of such a promise. To die in the Lord that he references speaks of a believer's position. The one who is living by faith in Jesus. Jesus took our curse that we might experience His blessing. Jesus, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, became the curse that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming the curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. While the unbeliever... The worshippers of the beast received that eternal curse and, and wrath and torment. Those who die in the Lord receive blessing. They receive the blessing of the Lord poured out on them. The message of, of the saints of, of the ages would be this. How much better to suffer now for a short time and to know the blessing of eternity than to find all the pleasure of this life and to know eternal torment. So what does the Spirit have to say? When God says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on, the Spirit, right on the heels of it, says, blessed indeed. In other words, you don't even know the half of it. That they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. That may sound more like a warning than a promise for many of us as we think about, oh man, <laughs> I was just talking with Jason, Jason. Here a little bit earlier about, I, I really don't need everybody to know all the deeds I did as a young man. Right? I don't need those deeds following me. Is that what he's talking about? That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, oh, man, watch out. No. Those who are walking by faith in the Spirit of God, living according to the Spirit, by faith, the deeds they're doing are the things they're doing in faith. Believing in God and His promises, each thing I do by faith are those labors that follow those are, those are the works of faith done throughout life, done by faith in God. One day we 'll rest from those labors. Why? Is it really faith when you 're face to face? Is faith needed at that point? Oh we'll labor we 'll enjoy living in in heaven. In the new heaven and the new earth, where we'll be with our Lord forever. But there'll be no more need for enduring through trials, suffering or persecution, for we will be with him and we will be able to rest. Rest, not just as a long nap, though many of you, I can tell right now, are like ready for that afternoon nap right after a good meal. But that this is a rest of the laboring of working against a world system that opposes us and everything in it. The death and the struggle. Our labors can follow us because because we who die in Christ will live with Christ. The labors of the faithful will live on with Him because... They are the treasures that have been laid up. They are, they have been done for the delight of heaven and so they will be their delight in heaven. We'll begin to see the impact and the benefit and the blessing of each work and the glory that has been brought to Christ. We'll see the eternal impact. We'll see the true eternal reward. See, that was a theme of the New Testament. It was a theme of the early church, that idea of, of the, the, the laboring and the reward. And we see Jesus talk about it in Matthew. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven for those who underwent suffering and persecution. Paul spoke of it in 2 Corinthians, receiving what is due for what each has done in the body. And James connects endurance directly to trial, saying that they will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so here in verses 12 and 13, God himself personally assures believers that they will experience eternal blessing, which is the good news of the gospel. In other words, all that living by faith will pay off. All that living by faith through the rocky journey of life will be remembered and rewarded. It won't be forgotten. And both God and the Spirit say, keep on. Keep on. You're almost home. You're almost home. I was telling a friend about this this weekend. In my small Kansas hometown, Main Street was a brick street and we would travel various various times to go maybe see my brother play basketball or go see grandma who lived two hours away or come home from the few vacations we did do. And we'd get home at night and I would be sleeping in the back of, of the van on the floor, you know, before you know, you had seatbelt laws and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's where I spent most of my time on trips. And I'd be sleeping back there, sound asleep, and we would come off the as- asphalt from the north, north side of town, and we would hit the bricks. It wasn't comfortable, but it was comforting. It was rough, and it was bouncy. It was not something that you enjoyed, except that it told me, I'm almost home. The comforts of home are so close. The pleasures of home are real, and they're just down the street. You're almost home. No matter how the rough, what the rough road felt like, all it said to me was, it's Waverly, and my home is on the far side of town about four blocks away. I'm almost home. Friend, the difficulties of this life, the bumps, and the dips, and the rumble, that we experience in this journey of all the difficulties, can be taken sending us one message. Friend, you're almost home. You're almost home. And oh, is it worth it. Blessed indeed. Blessed indeed. Because all the promises of God, all the promises of heaven, far exceed any and all of the pleasures of this life. Friend, what are you living for? What are we living for? If we are living by faith, we're living in the hope of the reality of heaven. And friend, that's home. With all of its pleasures and all of its comfort, let the bumps and the difficulties of this life be a reminder. Oh, got to get my eyes up. Heaven's coming. Heaven's ahead. The pleasures of heaven... The hope of heaven, it's ahead. And some of you, you have loved ones that have been there for many years ahead of you. And they would be the first to follow up with another amen to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit says, blessed indeed, they would say, oh, you don't even know. Blessed indeed it has been, and blessed indeed you will be if you die in the Lord. Are you in Christ? Are you living by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ who took that curse so that you don't have to face the eternal hell, but instead you can know the hope of moving on towards home? This is a call for endurance. This is a call to repentance. This is a call to keep moving towards home. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we consider home, as we consider heaven, there are many here today that have lost sight of that. They've become overcome by the cares of this life. They've been tempted and drawn astray by the pleasures of this life. They are distracted by the stuff of this life. And Lord, I pray that Your Word would remind us That that stuff all leads into death. That to live a life that is all about this life leads but one place, and that is to a doomed eternity. And Lord, I pray that that we would lift up our eyes to the one from whom our hope comes. And that we be encouraged today to walk by faith, to endure no matter what has come up upon our path this week, this year, and throughout this life. And for the one who, who has continued to walk away, to pursue, to chase the stuff of this life. Oh dear Lord, we call out and say, Lord, bring them short. Bring them clarity of mind to see the truth of what is coming. Lord, some of us have loved ones that we're aching for, we're weeping for at this very moment who have persisted in a life that is given to this world alone. We pray that you would bring them to faith in Christ and bring them life and hope in Christ. And Lord, as we close today, may you encourage us and so much the more with these words to the praise of your glory. And for our eternal good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.